Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Omber Kennedy of the Irish Times about the €3 billion Euro national broadband plan, which was launched by the government this week. I'll also be talking to Laura Slattery about the future of RTE2, which is set to lose its prime sports rights to RTE1. But first, uh, Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times joins me in the studio to go through some of the latest uh, business news from this week. And we're going to start with Pressup and Dave Pulls. A planned sale of a 45% stake, Peter. That's right. Uh, they were looking to raise up to €50 million. Euro Tell us a little bit disposing. about Pressup, first of all. Just set the scene for us. I suppose Pressup is one of the bigger pub owners, pub, hotel, restaurant owners in the capital, at least. I know they've also recently expanded out to the mm. country, having bought Lassen Estate um, near Athlone. Uh, and I know. yeah, they have plans for but venues in Cork, I know. That's right. Uh, they have plans for hotels in Cork and Galway. They have a hotel opening in Dublin uh, in December on the Docklands. They already have two hotels. Uh, they have another one on, uh, planning on Mount Street there for another hotel. Restaurants include Angelina's, Captain America's, uh, Wagamama's, Elephant and Castle. Castle as of late. So there's, there's very little they don't own. And there's cinemas the as well, the Stella brand. That's right, the Stella brand in Rathmines, one of those opening in Bray. So look, they're, they're, they're across hospitality mm. uh, in a big way. And that has led to the business, um, the trading operations of the business being valued at 100 million. And that's why they were looking for this this 50 million. Well, valued by press about 100 million. Indeed, valued by press about 100 million. So they, they were planning to raise this 50 million and they said that they pulled it because the founders found that their vision for the company wasn't shared by these prospective investors. Uh, this is the second time they've had to pull a, pull a planned share sale. They were looking to IPO last year uh, and hoping to raise up to 60 million in that process, but that they pulled uh, again. Maybe it's a case that the investors weren't persuaded by devaluation uh, and and the success of the business. Absolutely. I suppose the key thing here is that the trading assets and the properties are separated. Uh, Oakmont uh, owns many of the properties, uh, whereas the, the trading operations... Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the ownership because there's a really uh, interesting structure here. Paddy McKillen Jr. is the major shareholder and he's a very media shy man. I don't think there's any pictures of him in circulation that no, I'm aware of. There's not. There's no verified photograph of him in circulation. Very media shy. He, you know, he drives a Volkswagen Golf. Very normal chap. Uh, so he owns 50% of the company of Press Up. His father owns 25%. Paddy McKillen Sr.? Paddy McKillian, very well senior, known property the developer. Northern Irish property developer and the remaining stake then is controlled by a man called Matt Ryan and Liam Cunningham Matt is the chief uh, operating officer yeah now Matt Russell. he's a roll your sleeves up type of guy mm. he's knee deep in, in the operations of the business he's one of the driving forces behind it and you have to say it's been uh, very successful Absolutely. they operate under different brands but they're everywhere they are everywhere. It's been hugely successful on the face of things. Now, I suppose we don't know a lot about the company. Uh, we don't know a lot mm. about the underlying figures of the company. But the 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 um, the actual properties are owned then by Oakmont, uh, a development company also controlled by um, the same list of shareholders. Yeah. And uh, they're also looking at London, aren't they, for expansion? That's right. They have one person on the ground uh, over there and they're thought to be looking at venues in London. How far that will uh, mm. go, it remains to be seen. But uh, look... Whether their expansion now will be stopped on the basis that they can't raise new funds or they've decided not to raise new funds is another thing that remains to be seen. They are expanding at breakneck speed and as we mentioned there, they've recently bought a hotel outside the capital in Glasson. That doesn't, that's an unusual one. It doesn't seem to fit with their portfolio. Yeah. So whether there's more of that in the cards, uh, All right. we'll, we'll wait and see. Okay, we'll see how they get on. Now, Boeing has had a pretty dire year. The 737 MAX, as everybody knows, there were two crashes. Uh, 346 people sadly lost their lives. Uh, the MAX has been grounded ever since then. Um, and Boeing uh, now facing some other issues in relation to some other 737 aircraft. That's right. It's very much there, Anna Cerebellus. Uh, US regulators have called on the, the airplane maker to redesign the protective covering 
on engines of the older 737 aircraft. These are aircraft with more than 30,000 flying hours for the most part. What happened here was that there was a fatal accident last year on a Southwest Airlines aircraft in the US. A woman was pulled out at the window of a plane. Um, the, the, the passengers yeah, managed to... Publicity, yeah, got did. They managed to pull her back in, but she, she died ultimately from her injuries. So what Boeing have to do is they have to replace what's called a fan cowling on the existing 737 new generation aircraft. They're called NG. Um Ryanair, it should be said, is 450 of these aircraft. Now, Boeing did say that the 737NG is still safe to fly. And some analysts have said that this isn't going to cost them a huge amount of money because what they can do is there, there is a fix. Uh, they can strengthen the part rather than have to put in a new part or retrofit. Um, but look, this comes as Boeing tries to rebuild its mm. reputation. It's credibility issues, isn't it? Its credibility is very much shot. Uh, like... You know, we know that recently these the 737NGs have had to be grounded because of another issue, a separate issue. There were cracks in a component known as a pickle fork, which is key to the aircraft that it connects the wings to the fuselage. Um, and at least... That uh, sounds quite key. Uh, yeah, it's very important. Um, so, look, Boeing has been in trouble, as we know. Max, mm. now the NGs. Uh, still selling aircraft. They're still selling aircraft, but if you consider... Uh, the, the regulator here has to take some of the slack, one would have to say, because... Like the last time an aircraft was grounded, you mean before global the Max, regulators, not the Irish. No, regulator. the FAA. No, sorry, the FAA, the Federal Aviation yeah. Authority in the US. Um, so the last time an aircraft was grounded before the Max was the Boeing Dreamliner, and before that it was McDonnell Douglas in the nineties. It's self certification, essentially, isn't it? Effectively, in the US, and that's the problem, um, and and that's why that will have to change if passengers are to have faith in new aircraft Maxes are going to be the new workhorse of the sky and, and passengers will have to have faith in those aircraft and this has been one of the most successful aircraft in the history of aviation mm. Boeing and Airbus dominate this market so mm. we need Boeing to continue to manufacture planes otherwise we yeah. won't be able to go on our holidays uh, Peter Boeing is hoping that uh, at some point early in 2020 that the, the Max is going to be recertified and they're going to be able to start uh, flying it again and hopefully mm. they'll put these issues behind them but would you be prepared to be one of the first people on the first Max uh, out of uh, out of Dodge, as it were. I think this aircraft is going to be so scrutinised that, look, I'd be happy to get on the first one. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a rebrand though, but airlines have have committed to these these this aircraft for whatever reason. Uh, like by Tuesday at the Dubai Air Show, airlines had laid out plans to buy 50 of them mm. at $6 billion list price. Only today, Emirates said it'll take 30. So look, they're happy enough. Uh, why shouldn't I be? All right. Now, one man who probably doesn't have to worry about flying with Boeing or Air- Airbus uh, on a scheduled aircraft is Michael Smurford, a very wealthy uh, individual, a very successful businessman. I'm sure he's able to uh, hire a private jet. He is the owner of the K-Club Hotel and Golf Resort in County Kildare. It's been on the market now for quite a while, and it looks as if he might be finally about to get a sale over the line. That's right. We expect uh, negotiations with the hotelier and nursing home operator Michael Featherston to conclude in in, in the coming weeks. Um, Sources have suggested to us that the five star hotel is going to change hands for about seventy million euro. That's slightly below what uh, Michael Smurford was said to have been looking for. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, K Club sits on a five hundred and fifty acre estate in Straffan. Uh, two 18-hole golf courses. People will remember it uh, because of its Ryder Cup uh, fame in 2006. 2006. Yeah, uh, and a 134-bedroom hotel. So you'd have to think that there's probably room for expansion there. Under the deal, Michael Burford won't retain ownership of his mm. course-side villa. So look, it's interesting that it's it's nearing conclusion. It's been problematic what, what, what by the... Yeah, what can you tell us about Michael Feddersen? Because again, he's uh, somebody who's flown below the yeah. media radar successfully. He has. And I, I think initially when this story came out, people wondered whether it might 
become a nursing home. Alas, that doesn't appear to be uh, what's on the cards for the, the 70 million euro K club. Um, his main business interest is the TLC Nursing Homes Group, which has five facilities in the greater Dublin area. Uh, he also has some hotel interests uh, and pub. In- he had pub interests in the past, including one uh, in Rahini and a once po- popular night spot on South William Street, I'm told, I was never in it, uh, called Viva. Um, so he seems to be a bit of a, a an all-rounder uh, in business terms. And look, he... The K Club might be a challenge for him, given that it will. It uh, it's uh, it's lost, my guy. I don't think it's, I don't ever recall him making a profit. Most recently, a three point seven million loss, and that was an increase on the previous year, and that was a three point two million loss. Like these are these are big big big, big sum losses. Big, big uh, so if you're paying seventy million for an asset, um, you, you'd want it at least to to break even. You'd have to think. Yes, yes, yes. You'd want to come in at, at least at par. I think yeah. that's the uh, terminology <laughs> they, they use in golf. All right, Peter, we'll see how that goes. No doubt we'll uh, be reporting on that again in the future. Peter Hamilton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, the much-talked-about and highly controversial national broadband was finally launched by the government this week. It's going to come with a €3 billion Euro price tag. Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times uh, was there for the launch. He's going to be talking to us in a few moments. I'm also joined on the line by Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on communications, David Cullinan. Uh, Owen, maybe we'll start with you. Just tell us a little bit about what the uh, government unveiled on Tuesday. Yeah, so... Um this is the kind of culmination of a five-year procurement process, uh, as you said, fraught with controversies and high-profile exits of firms like Tyro and Air. But essentially this week, the government signed a contract with National Broadband Ireland, which is the vehicle or company set up by US businessman David McCourt to deliver the government's broadband plan. And that plan, just to remind uh, your listeners, is to bring superfast broadband to about 542,000 homes and businesses, predominantly in rural Ireland. Um, it'll commence in the new year. It'll take about seven years to complete, although most of the homes will be done in the first three years. Uh, so it's a very ambitious undertaking. Uh, the price tag, as you've uh, alerted listeners, is up to three billion, which is uh, about six times the original estimate. Um, and obviously the government uh, is effectively digitalising rural Ireland and it wants to do it in one go. And the reason why it does it wants to do that is because we've had broadband plans in the past and they've all been literally obsolete nearly before completion. So this time the government has gone for what I called it in a column today the Rolls-Royce option which is to run fibre the gold standard of internet co- connectivity into each house and home across the country. Right okay now why is it costing six times more than the original figure? Yeah well that's that's, that, that's a difficult question to answer in one go but I tell you one of the main points is that I think we've tumbled to very late in the day. It is very complex and a very difficult undertaking to build telecommunications in rural parts of uh, the world. And it's doubly so in Ireland, where you have a very complex tapestry of one-off housing and poor planning. That's going to make it doubly costly. There's also the fact that there's low take-up in rural areas, despite the clamour you hear about in the news and in the media. So that puts an extra risk on the companies going into rural areas. And then, of course, the government's procurement process ended with just one bidder. And, of course, if you have one bidder in a procurement process, you're going to have the government over a barrel on price. So a mixture of those reasons, and we have a near three billion price tag, which is six times the original 500 million that we thought it was going to cost. And just in terms of the operation of this, National Broadband Ireland is essentially going to build out the network and it's going to wholesale it then to companies the likes of 
Sky, Vodafone, they'll all basically PT send exactly. They'll all uh, send uh, sell bundles to uh, clients, customers, homes, businesses off the network. So a bit like what goes on elsewhere in the country, and they will pay uh, National Broadband Ireland one hundred euros to connect a premises or a business, and they will either absorb part of that or package it up in the cost to you, the user. Okay. Uh, David Cullinan, thanks for joining us. Now, I was in Kerry last week and I was actually in Killarney National Park. And you might think that Killarney, you know, it's a big bustling town. You might think it'd be well served um, by 4G, but I actually couldn't get a phone signal. So clearly we have an issue in rural Ireland uh, where there's uh, poor broadband, there's, there certainly isn't high-speed broadband, and there's even difficulties in getting a, a phone signal. So you must welcome this plan. Well, first of all, I, I welcome the fact that uh, people in rural Ireland uh, will get broadband and we have long campaigned for a national broadband plan to be rolled out. There is no dispute whatsoever that there are huge parts of rural Ireland that need proper connectivity. Uh, and it's not just in Kerry, in my own constituency in Waterford and in many rural parts of the country, there is a need to expand the opportunities for those 500,000 uh, households and uh, customers now that are without broadband. So obviously we need a national broadband plan. The problem is with the process here and the cost involved with this particular plan. And there has been not just yellow flags, but red flags raised over the last number of years in relation to many aspects of this plan. Obviously from some of the service providers, and it was mentioned that some of those who pulled out of the bidding for all sorts of different reasons, it has been bogged and marred down in controversy. It did end up with Minister Nocton, Dennis Nocton at the time, having to resign or resigning from his post because of controversy in respect of this uh, process. Uh, we also uh, know that it's going to cost six times what was the original estimated cost. And the reason for that is the very complicated, convoluted design, build and operate model which the government went with. So we're using a combination of some new infrastructure which will be built, piggybacking on existing infrastructure from there and elsewhere, and there's rental costs involved in that. But crucially that the successful bidder will also have the opportunity to operate the service. And that's very lucrative. And one of the core concerns that we have is that the state will pay €3 billion Euro for something that a private company will actually own, not just the network, but also access to the 500,000 customers. And while they will be financially better off, uh, the state is taking all of the risk with very little risk from this company. And we're not on our own in having concerns about this. We know that the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, who in the past were criticised for not raising flags in relation to overspend on the National Children's Hospital, did raise flags in respect of this particular plan and those uh, red flags were uh, ignored. And we've also had two doll motions which were passed in relation to public ownership of the network. We had two reports, one from the PAC and one from the Minister's own line committee, the Committee for Communications, all saying that the government should have pressed the pause button, reflected on the plan that is clearly flawed from their perspective in terms of costs and in terms of ownership, and look at the alternative models in, in a much more so what, realistic what, way. What would you have done? If you'd been in government, what would you have done? Well, we would have looked at having, first of all, the contract not being the gap funding model and the design, build and operate model that the government went to it. We would have, first of all, built the infrastructure. And part of the problem here, and it's, it's, it's more complicated by the fact that over 300,000 customers were taken out of the initial bundle. It was meant to be for 800,000 customers. The uh, air took about 300,000 of the 
lucrative uh, customers in a separate bundle that then made the last remaining 500,000 obviously very costly to provide the service. So what they needed was the infrastructure to enable to access because if this was left, left to the hands of the, of the private sector, they would not have done it. So state aid rules do apply. The difficulty here is that the state, yes, is investing in the infrastructure and enabling uh, this private company to be able to provide the service to those 500,000 people, but at a huge cost and not owning the access to the customers, which is, will be lucrative, and not owning the infrastructure. So we would have looked at a different model, which would have looked at the ESB, for example, or some other utility rolling out the building of the infrastructure. And then sure, you could the look ESB, later ESB at, at was who part of the process uh, with Syro. I mean, uh, Owen, I'm writing that, aren't I? Yes. ESB is a... Um, uh, what, a 50% shareholder? Yeah, in joint venture, sorry, it's a joint venture. Yeah. Uh, why did they walk away from it? Well, they walked away from it um, literally straight after the 300,000 homes that uh, David just mentioned there were taking out uh, taken out of the original intervention area. So they saw uh, air, if you like, swiping the low-hanging fruit from the project, making the whole thing just less um, commercially viable, even though it is kind of quasi-commercial project. Yeah. And Air, in fact, have come along um, since uh, to an Oireachtas. Maybe this is one for you, David. Um, Air went to an Oireachtas uh, committee recently and they said they could do it for a fraction of the cost. Did you believe them? Well, listen, obviously there's vested interests here as well. So I'm conscious that any of these operators will have their own interests. I think what we needed to, needed to do was to separate out all of those providers and the vested interests from what's actually the most important thing, that all of those 500,000 people would get broadband. Uh, if you look at, for example, what happened in Austria, where the European Commission approved under state aid rules 60 million euro of public support to roll out uh, uh, ultra-fast uh, broadband in a region in, in that country. And that was done by the establishment of a, a, a state company. The same should have happened here, or we could have done it obviously through the ESB or some other network. So you build a network first, and then you can look at how you supply the customers and who supplies the customers and the state then could offset some of the costs. What we've actually done here is given the whole design, build and operate model to a private company that are putting in very little capital. The cost of the state has uh, multiplied by six and there are concerns in relation to capacity and whether or not this will actually be delivered in time and yeah. in, in a way that can be done to make sure that the people get the broadband that they need. So what was... and, and I think it was a reasonable request from both the PEC and the Oireachtas Committee on Communications was they both called for a very short uh, time frame where the government would uh, set up an independent uh, commission that would look at all of the alternatives, look to see this the best model, are we getting best value for money, could state aid rules be used to do this in a different way and better protect the taxpayer while at the same time delivering the broadband that people need. The government didn't do that and I think they saved face yeah. and were facing down the criticisms from even their own uh, senior officials. Just, uh, in just in terms, departments. yeah, just in terms of the cost. I think Dennis Nocton, the former minister you mentioned earlier, uh, he made the point last night on TV that um, in terms of the cost, they are actually getting a gold-plated service, as, as Owen mentioned uh, earlier. It's fibre to the home, um, as opposed to what was originally proposed when when that price tag of five hundred million was was knocking about. And obviously, I think that was back in two thousand and fourteen. That figure um, came from. You know, clearly there's been inflation and so forth um, since that. And of course, we know with all of these uh, public projects, it doesn't matter if you're building broadband or a hospital or public housing or anything else, the, a bridge or whatever, the costs always uh, seem to inflate um, from the time that the project is first mooted to the time that it actually gets delivered. 
Well, I think we could all live with a level of cost inflation, but I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that uh, six times the, the value is, is cost inflation. I mean, if you're going to build a home and you were given a price of 200,000 and then you find out the cost is a million euro, I don't think you'd be too happy. So there is in, issues in relation to cost. There is issue. There are issues in relation to the uh, the ownership of the access to the customers and to the infrastructure. And there are issues in relation to viable alternatives that were not looked at. And I think that's the problem. There are genuine reasons why some of the other operators opted out of the process. And what we do know about procurement is that there has to be sufficient competitive tension. But if you end up with a single bidder, that to me again shows that there are problems with the process here. Because if it was the case that the state was carrying the level of risk that we eventually found out it was carrying, I think that would have changed the game for lots of the different operators. But I'm going back to the point I made earlier. If the state and the government had went for a design and build model only and then looked at how customers are then uh, given access and that all operators could have equal access, as is happening in Austria and elsewhere, to the actual customer base, that would have been better. There would have been rental income coming in from that and the state could have saved money. Instead, they've given over lock, stock and barrel to this company access to all of the customers and the ownership of the infrastructure, and the state is paying the vast, vast sure. bulk of the cost. Okay. Owen, could this end up being a white elephant? I mean, do we know how many people are going to actually take up this service? We know it's going to pass half a million homes or so, but how many people are actually going to subscribe? Okay, well, I mean, the, the 300,000 homes that AIR took out of the original intervention area is a good kind of template, litmus test of what's going on. And that was initially quite a low take-up of um, customers on that on, on that network. Well, initially it started off at 10%. I don't know where they are now. Uh, the aim in the kind of medium term is to get it up to 30 and 40%. But that uh, means it the, the company going into these rural parts shoulders a lot of risk initially because the, the revenues can't be guaranteed and therefore they can kind of have the government over a barrel in terms of uh, price. And that seems to be what's happened in the bargaining uh, at the heart of this project that has been taking place behind closed doors between the department and between the uh, businessman, David McCorth. Just to, 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 to push back a little bit, uh, the government should be commended for, for, for undertaking such an ambitious project because if this works and if rural Ireland is in one go turned from a, a broadband laggard into a high-tech area all linked up with fibre broadband, coupled with the commercial fibre rollout, we could see in five years 90% of the homes in this country connected to fibre broadband. That would be like nowhere else in Europe and it would transform the landscape. I asked an industry source um, yesterday just to explain to me if that actually came to pass. And by the way, the commercial fibre rollouts are progressing. I said, what, what would it be like if we, if we actually achieved that? And he said, it would change how the country is perceived. It will change foreign direct investment. It will change the ability of companies to locate outside Dublin. It will give people the ability to work at home. It will transform education, health. He said it would genuinely make us a digital economy. That's, a, that's an amazing statement, and it would, it would transform... It would speed, speed up Netflix uh, download times. <laughs> it would times, speed up uh, Netflix download times. Actually, I just want to come in on that point. It's a fair point. Um, David, Paul Smith, who's a senior executive, very senior executive in Microsoft, he was at the Web Summit recently in Lisbon, which is run by Paddy Cosgrave. As we know, it used to be hosted in Dublin. And he was very critical of our telecoms infrastructure in Ireland, and he made the point that we, we really... Um, need to do more uh, to invest in that and, and we're not up to speed with a lot of other countries 
Well, I suppose that's part of the problem here because there is no quarrel from me, and I would agree with Owen and indeed others as well who would argue that this is transformative. Of course it's transformative. If we have a situation where we increase the connectivity to 90% and beyond, obviously that would be massive and it would really put Ireland on a very strong uh, playing field in terms of uh, attracting industry and investment and that's where we all want to be. Uh, We were screaming at the government for a long number of years to roll out a national broadband plan so there isn't any quarrel about the need for uh, broadband in rural Ireland. There's no quarrel about the transformative nature of it but I think we have to do our job as an opposition party and hold the government to account in terms of the model that they choose. And as I said, we're not on our own here. Uh, There were genuine concerns raised by the Department of Public Expenditure, whose job it is to protect the taxpayer and ensure that we have proper public procurement processes. There was concerns, and there are genuine concerns, in relation to the ownership of the network and access to customers and the risk that the state is taking here. Let's see what happens. I hope that it will be successful. I hope that we will get the connectivity that we need. Uh, But some concerns have been raised by other operators, and you can say, yes, they're a vested interest. But there are questions being raised in relation to the ability of this company to be able to deliver. Let's hope that they can. But I don't think that can take away from the legitimate concerns that people have about the process here. But there is no quarrel for me about the need, and as has been pointed out, about the transformative nature of what would happen if we do get the connectivity for the 500,000 people who will get it and not just householders but businesses in rural Ireland. That is important and I think it's unfortunate that that's lost in what is the controversy around the actual process. I'd say one thing about the process before we finish uh, it's just that the government did pay around 25, 30 million in consultancy fees to find the right model and they came up with a model that was entirely shunned by the domestic industry here which is an amazing uh, statement that uh, these high-paid consultants could actually come up with Can a we model. get a refund on that? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. But, uh, can I ask you, just to finish on, can I ask you, our National Broadband Ireland is the company that now is charged with uh, rolling out this network and it's going to be given, what, a, a $3 billion or, or thereabouts uh, subsidy. Are they going to make out like bandits financially on this? Are they going to make a fortune out of this? Well, they say they're going to have to put up a lot of money well, 220 million, it seems, up front and build out and they don't get the subsidy until they start passing homes and until they start signing up customers. So they say the subsidy comes out, you know, uh, in bits and bobs and it doesn't come out some one big chunk which they can make off it. So they say it's it's totally down to how they perform. Now, since they were announced as preferred bidder in May, they've been off feverishly discuss, discussing with various different groups, Kelly Group, uh, Dennis O'Brien's Activa, Activo, uh, about laying the fibre yeah. subcontractors they've been uh, they've, um, they're using Nokia for the equipment they're using Foresight well, we know for how many people I mean Air and the network that Air now owns used to be in state ownership uh, many years ago it was privatised and we know what happened subsequently it went through uh, various owners uh, hands and a lot of them made huge amounts of money out and of that and that's why we're having this process in 5 or 10 years time are we going to be writing or reading about stories of National Broadband Ireland being sold to another company at a huge, uh, huge figure and David McCourt and his other investors making a huge profit out of this project? Well, that's a $6 million question, isn't it? I mean, there's no doubt there's big, big money in telecoms and there's no doubt uh, uh, David McCourt has bet big on Ireland and he obviously sees a prize at the end of his operations here. Um, the government say they've tied a lot of uh, various clauses into the contract which will claw back excess profitability. 
the subsidies don't come out, as I said, unless homes are passed and homes are connected. So they they feel they've tied the operator into a kind of modest return. But uh, we've heard that in the past before and seen people, uh, you know, walk away with handsome sums for doing projects in Ireland. Yeah, final word to you, David Cullinan. Uh, a modest profit sounds fair enough, but is that what you expect out of this uh, project in the years ahead? Well, I certainly don't blame a company or a consortium for taking an opportunity and looking to make money. That's what these companies are in business for. So if there is a business opportunity or an opportunity for this company to make money, that's what it will do. I think there is a break in the contract as well that they can sell uh, their their interest in the uh, contract after seven years. And I think that's one of the concerns that was expressed as well, uh, that uh, that, that there wouldn't be as much risk uh, that would be taken by the company and that they could, if they wanted to, get out uh, very quickly without uh, much cost to themselves and and make a lot of money. So, listen, that is one of the challenges. I'll finish by saying that uh, the most important issue here and has been for a long number of years that people get the connectivity, that rural Ireland gets the broadband, As I said earlier, I think it is regrettable that it has been bogged down in controversy and that the issues that we're talking about are not what we should be talking about, which is what was outlined earlier, the opportunities that will present. So whatever about the cost, at the end of the day, once this is rolled out, and if it is rolled out and if it is delivered, then I think we then need to focus on how do we exploit those opportunities that will put Ireland in a very strong and very unique position. I just think it's unfortunate that the government has opted for the model it has opted and the taxpayer possibly is going to pay an awful lot more than it possibly should. And it's another big infrastructure project where not just because of the advice that was given by consultants, but the ignoring advice from civil servants and by others that we've ended up potentially again with a big project that uh, will cost us more than it should. All right, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Umbrook Kennedy and David Cullinan. We're going to take a short break now. Uh, when we return, I'll be talking to Laura Slattery about the future of RTE2, which is set to lose its prime sports rights to RTE1. Back in a few moments. You're listening to the Irish Times. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, in a bid to get its finances back on track, RTE recently announced plans to trim 60 million euro from its cost base over the next three years. Among other things, the Montrose broadcaster has decided to move its prime sports coverage from RTE2 to RTE1. But can RTE2 survive without its biggest rating hits? Laura Slattery considered that very issue in a column in the Irish Times this week and she joins me now in the studio. Laura, you're very welcome. Um, why is RTE proposing to move its sports coverage from RTE2 to 1? Well, I can only imagine that they've run the numbers and that they reckon that by sort of consolidating their biggest audiences mm. on one single channel, um, it's just better for them financially. Um, advertisers like that kind of halo effect where a much-watched programme is followed by another much-watched programme on the schedule. So, Yeah, you uh, made the point in your column that the BBC, for example, wouldn't dream of putting, uh, I don't know, an England football match or something, yeah. or Wimbledon uh, men's final, let's say, on BBC One as opposed to BBC Two. Yeah, although I think the Wimbledon BBC rather as opposed to BBC One. There was a clash with the Wimbledon men's final and the and the World Cup final last year. Now yeah. that I think about it, but yes, and generally that principle would uh, hold. Uh, you know, firm they don't treat BBC Two as the home of sports the way RTE would regard RTE Two as the home of sports. So it's a little bit of an anomaly, I think, was the 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 point I was making there. So they they you know there has been some years where All Ireland finals, for example, have popped up on RT1 rather than 2 but uh, by and large 
almost all of the big sport is on RT2 and in, indeed it's incredibly important to the RTE2 schedule particularly in the summer months so I was looking at say last September okay so that's that's probably one of the, the sport mm. heavy months and you know all top 10 programmes on RT2 were sport and in fact the top four of those were the most watched programmes on RTE in September as a whole so so the, the, the four biggest audiences at RTE were on the second channel I'm just kind of they may be just looking at that kind of thing and thinking mm. is this sustainable? Yeah well interestingly if you look at 2018 the 10 most watched programmes on Irish television in 2018 RTE2 had four and that was they were all sports uh, programmes so it's clearly a very important driver of ratings for RTE2 now there is an issue if they switch to RTE1 because we could have an Ireland soccer match a Euro qualifier a World Cup qualifier let's say being played on a Friday night that's the way these things pan yeah. out nowadays and they could be played any time between roughly a, a Thursday and a Tuesday. And if it's uh, the case that Ireland plays a key qualifier on a Friday night, that obviously would clash with the Late Late Show. So what yeah. does RT do then? I mean, I just I just don't think they would want to move the Late Late Show with any kind of regularity. Or even a news bulletin. Or even a news bulletin. You know, news is very well watched as a genre in Ireland, even compared to the UK. And even the, the soap audience, OK, that's probably the most movable because it's only 30 minutes and it can it, that could shift to your second channel. But they probably won't want to disrupt uh, too much midweek. So I would say when they say that they, they're going to move the big sporting moments to RTE1 and they haven't said when they'll do this yet um, I would say that you're looking at the weekends you're looking at GAA and, and fixtures like that uh, is what they'll start with first and GAA is largely what RTE is left with in well I mean sports this rights, is the it? other thing I mean I mean, sport as we know is you know more important than ever to broadcasters but there's there's no doubt that in the springtime there's a bit of a hole now on RTE that they've lost the Six Nations or halfway through the deal now that Virgin Media has uh, rights to the Six Nations that previously would have brought in quite a bit of money to um, RTE uh, in, in the first quarter of the year yeah. they haven't got that now and the GAA the is very important m- they've lost the vast majority of the Champions League rights to Virgin Media as well they just have one game a week they don't even have the final anymore Yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit moribund on that front Yeah um, Okay now uh, tell us a little bit about RTE2 how important is it um, to RTE as an organisation in terms of let's say revenues or audience yeah, so I mean, I was kind of like you know looking at the future of RT two as as a whole because you know what happens if it doesn't have the big sport? So we see in particular years it's just inc- incredibly important. Those are the years where there's a World Cup on, and also the years where there's a Euro um, twenty twenty or whatever, and the Olympics uh, tend to be on the same year. And those those years, you know, RT two can have an, an it's just a very crude measure, but an, an audience share of double digits, even you know going as high as fifteen percent for those months. But, uh, you know, in a normal year, it's more closer to 8% in those summer months. And in a sport light month, it would sort of dip below 5%. So, you know, you're getting down to, you know, almost Virgin Media 2 levels at that point. They're, they're, they would be about 4%. And it just looks a little bit less, you know, less kind of uh, active, I guess, as a channel. You know, we all know, you know, there's, there's so many channels out there on, on our electronic programme guides, but they're not all mm. created equal. You know, there's some channels that have a lot of love poured into them in terms of their marketing, their identity, and of course, you know, the, the actual programming budgets. But I think over the years, RTE2 has, it's kind of come and gone out of fashion. It's it's shows some of the kids' programmes in the morning. It's got the sport, obviously, in, in, in certain times. And then there's been, an, you know, there's an attempt every year to commission a raft of programmes uh, 
comedies and so on that appeal to 15 to 34 year olds or at least that's the the target market and they've struggled a little bit uh, there in 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 recent years now occasionally there are you know good programs on the young offenders is one which is um a co-production with the BBC and the BBC in fact are the sort of main commissioning body there but even compared to two or three years ago when, you know, RT2 had its own controller who's now since left for Virgin, um, it, it seems like, you know, it's almost like they know they're fighting a little bit of a losing battle. So um, that has kind of, I suppose, spurred um, conversation about whether or not RT2, that, all that programme there is really, you know, sustainable or is it, really the kind of shows that eventually in the future they might simply put on demand or at least they would care more about the on-demand audience than they would about how many people are watching it on a linear channel like RTE2. Yeah. Now, uh, people might be interested to know that according to the RTE annual report for 2018, um, €25 from the €160 licence fee went towards RTE2. That was down from uh, just under €30 in 2017. But that's twice um, what... RT Radio 1, for example, would get uh, from the licence fee. So it does get a significant yeah. chunk of change. From and, and most of that is sports. I mean, if you look at their programming spend for last year, you know, RTE spent uh, about £42 million in, in 2018 on sport. And uh, £32 million of that was, you know, RT2. So that's the television coverage and, and, and so on. Um, and you know that's that's the lar- a large chunk of, of it's it's pretty much ha- half that you know the cost of RT two, um, but you know the commercial revenue is listed as only twenty two million. So, so sport isn't is is costs a lot of money, but it doesn't always actually yeah. deliver in terms of of uh, you know profit. Um, but it's 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 just it's sort of almost seen as more of a statement of importance, you know, centrality to Irish life and uh, public service broadcasting and and all of the rest of it. But as we know, there's a lot of more com- competition now, as we mentioned already, and so that that's that's why I suppose people they they mu- they must be sort of looking at it and thinking, okay, we need to we need to actually concentrate on RT one, and it sort of does point to an RT two that you know m- you know may well you know continue it would still continue still be there but is a lot more unloved. Um, I should probably say that when Dee Forbes, the Director General at RTE, was pressed on this issue uh, by Brian Dobson on Morning Ireland about whether or not the move with the sport would lead to a downgrading or a winding down of RTE2, she said absolutely not. But she'd also said that, you know, it will be maybe more of a window to the RTE player. So that sort of suggests that they are, you know, that there's a touch of that thinking is creeping in. They are looking to the future. What does that mean, a window to the RT player? Well, I guess, you know, the, 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 the you know, when On Demand uh, first started, people thought, you know, great. Actually, this is a way of marketing the fact that we have all this great content on our channels. But now it's kind of flipped that the channels are kind of almost like marketing tools for the On Demand service. So if you look, like a bro- if you look at a broadcaster like Sky, they're still in the business of launching new channels. They launched. Um, they've la- they've launched one called Sky Crime, and they are launching one called Sky Comedy in the new year. This is for for television uh, programs, I should say. Not this is not connected with their cinema channels, and. You know, for Sky, like th- that's about kind of almost advertising the fact that they have those same program titles on their on-demand library. So it's just a kind of a flip in how you think of it. But um, I think there's still probably a good few issues with the advertising market in terms of replicating 
um, the kind of money they would get on linear channel advertising online. So they won't want to sort of uh, jeopardise that um, to any major extent unless they can, of course, severely mm. uh, cut their costs at the same time. There was a time when watching TV was a pretty simple exercise, uh, <laughs> not so much anymore. If they take away the big sporting hits from RT2, what are they likely to replace with? Repeats, I imagine. I mean, it'll be repeats, not, not of sport, but of uh, some of the same shows that they have on now. There's a lot of Im- imports on RT2. And, you know, if we look at some of the shows that they do have in that line, you know, they're, they're probably quite inexpensive to buy. So something like The Handmaid's Tale, they show that first in Europe. or and Well, most importantly, they show it before Channel 4. So the Irish audience will watch it on RT2 rather than Channel 4, unless they haven't uh, illegally downloaded it, of course. But um, so they can, they, you know, they can probably do a little bit along those lines. I mean, there's, there's you know, some people would object to I think it's from twenty four million that RTE spends on imports, but there's there's they get a vast quantity of them for that for that amount of money, um, so you can see them maybe going down more along those lines, whilst you know still having you know a smattering of original programming in in, in the, to appeal to younger people, uh, original content of their own. Well, but now, there might be a fear uh, that it could disappear from our screens altogether. That happened to BBC Three; it went online. I don't know if it's still yeah. online. Uh, yeah, maybe you can fill us in yeah. on that. Uh, but BBC Three was quite popular. I used to watch myself. Uh, they had yes. some interesting programs which migrated onto BBC Two or One um, subsequently. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, the spectre of BBC Three hangs over this conversation because, as I said, I think it would be quite extreme for them to completely pull the plug on RTE Two. But the BBC did it uh, on BBC Three and they did it for cost-cutting reasons. That was what triggered it. It was part of a hundred million that they were trying to save at the time. It wasn't really about saying, look how modern we are. Sure, sure don't young people only look, look at TV online anyway. They pulled the plug on a channel and, and turned it into a kind of an on-demand brand. And the best programmes end up on BBC Two or BBC One anyway. Um, and they, they actually, you know, they're the ones who commission The Young Offenders. They've commissioned uh, Normal People, which is the adaptation of Sally Rooney's novel, which will be on air next year. Um, it's a little bit, the whole tactic is a little bit annoying for Irish uh, viewers because they actually can't access BBC Three online in this country. Um so you're kind of reliant you on it popping BBC up elsewhere. Either, is, yeah, you're uh, reliant on, on it popping up on a linear channel at the BBC or being acquired right. by an Irish broadcaster. Okay, uh, Laura, I'm going to ask you to call it now. Look out to 2025. Is RT2 still on our television screens? I think it will be, but I don't I don't think it will be, uh, you know, filled with an amazing budget, uh, great, expensive Irish content. I think it'll be more like the kind of spillover channel, a little bit, shall we say, of an also ran. Okay, we'll have you back in 2025 to um, <laughs> see if that prediction comes true or not. And um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Ombrook Kennedy, David Cullinan, and Laura Slattery. Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.